0: In the summer of 1914, Britain's regular army marched to war. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany referred to the British Expeditionary Force as a contemptible little army, and they soon dubbed themselves the Old Contemptibles. Who were these men? What's the story of their old comrades' association formed after the war? And what about John Parr? Was he the first Old Contemptible to be killed on the battlefield? Well, welcome back to uh, another Trench Chat. I'm really pleased this week to be joined by Andrew Thornton, who's a great war researcher and historian and has worked as a battlefield guide on the Royal British Legion GP90 events in 2018 and also uh, for Armistice 100. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Really pleased to have you here. Thank you for inviting me, Paul. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. So in terms of your own, I always ask everyone that comes on, on this uh, the same
1: question. In terms of your own interest in the Great War, where did it start for you? My interest started when, uh, basically from when I was born. Uh, At the time I was born, my dad was in the army, he was stationed with the uh, Household Cavalry Mounted Regiment at High Park Barracks, he was in the Blues and Royals. So um, I was surrounded from day one by things military, and obviously he came out of the army in 1974, sort of when I was uh, coming up to three years old, but that Interest never left me, and obviously it developed from playing with toy soldiers and action man and things like that. And then, uh, as I got into my teenage years, I started uh, reading books about particular subjects. But with regard to the Great War, um, the catalyst for me—I'd uh, I'd had a in- passing interest in it—but the first time I went on the battlefield tour, uh, our school battlefield tour, when I lived in the northeast in February 1988, was the real kickstarter for me to concentrate my interests on uh, researching aspects of the Great War, particularly the experiences of uh, those who um, served on the uh, Western Front in particular.
0: So in terms of your your sort of more recent research, you've done a lot of stuff on, on the old contemptibles, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I have, yes, yes. Well, with regard to that, uh, my interest in the old contemptibles came back again from my dad. Um, When I was um, at school, it was around about 1984 when it was the uh, 70th anniversary of the outbreak of the Great War. And obviously there were a few events and programmes on the television regarding the uh, old contemptibles and the original BEF 1914. And um, he he said, you know, we happened to be watching one of those. I think it might have been uh, the programme that was shown on BBC Two. Very ex, was it very exceptional soldiers? I can't remember.
0: Very exceptional soldiers, yeah, when they took the last veterans back.
1: That's, that's the one, yes. Well, I can remember watching that vaguely, mm-hmm. and I can remember my dad uh, telling saying how um, good the old army, as he called them, were. Um, I mean, when he was in the army, he used to have an old contempt to come and visit the uh, Corporal of Horses mess at Knightsbridge, a chap called Bert Turp, who was in uh, the Royal Dragoons, which my dad had been in before. Amalgamated uh, to become the Blues and Royals. And uh, Bert used to come and uh, fight, sort uh, seek out the extra Raw Dragoons and sort of ask them to buy him a pint and things like that. But he was always very impressed with the old Contemptibles and how obviously I became interested in that. And from that, I started reading uh, various books like uh, David Ascoli's uh, Monstar, uh, Tim Carew's books, uh, Anthony Farah Hockley's uh, book about uh, First Deep. Um, I can remember in 1988 when Lynn MacDonald's book um, 1914 came out and what I was particularly struck with that was her use of um, accounts which I obviously later found out were a mixture of near contemporary and also later interviews and finding out about um, the experiences of those who served in France and Flanders in 1914 and, and what they'd seen and what they remembered.
0: And in terms of when, when we talk about old contemptibles, I mean some people think that applies to every soldier that was in the Great War, but it's a it's a very specific yeah. group, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, to be an old contemptible, you had to have served um, with the British Expeditionary Force between the date of qualification was fifth of August to 20, midnight twenty second, twenty third of November nineteen fourteen, but to be and um, to have also qualified for the nineteen fourteen star. But to be regarded as a true old contemptible, you you had to be eligible to uh, receive the clasp uh, to be worn on the ribbon of the 1914 star, which had those qualification dates on it. And to give you some idea of the the size of the BEF between August and the the end of November 1914, there were something like 348,000 1914 stars issued. At the end of the war, and I think there's an estimate, although nobody's quite certain, that there were 150,000 or so clasps claimed for uh, in the years subsequent to that, when the, the clasps were awarded um, after they uh, decided that uh, they needed some distinction to show those people who have been in the original BF on the medal.
0: So, uh, if you were a if you were a baseballer at Rouen. Making the bread to be sent up to the front line, so Private Smith could could eat it at Bois Grenier. You couldn't get into the Old Contemptibles Association then if you didn't have
1: the class. Actually, Paul, that's not quite true. Ah. Uh, for res- that that's uh, the interesting thing from my research because I, I mean, obviously I've been interested in the Old Contemptibles for a long time, but uh, I've been obviously doing a lot of research in the past few years about the Old Contemptibles Association because there's. Although people have heard of the chums and the Old Contentables Association, there's a lot that the little that was available is, I've found from doing my research, is very inaccurate. With regard to sort of who was a chum, the association were very specific in that you could only join the association if you were in possession of the clasp to your 1914 star. But I'm currently compiling a nominal roll of chums from the association based on Um, information recorded and branch nominal roles in the uh, magazine of the association which was called the old contemptible and newspaper reports and uh, looking at individuals and finding out uh, who they were what branches they were in and uh, what units they served with in 1914 there were quite a few uh, chums who were members of the association who either didn't qualify for the CLASP but for some reason it was ignored. I've even found uh, chums who had an application for a clasp refused, uh, but they they still happen to be members of of a particular branch and uh, found some even more interesting ones of chums who didn't even qualify for a 1914 star in any way, shape or form. Um, One that springs to mind is uh, there's a nominal role of the Aldershot branch uh, from 1936 that I have that was printed in the Old Contemptible. And uh, one of the chums was a a sailor on HMS Birmingham. And, of course, the Royal Navy uh, at sea didn't qualify for the 1914 Star. It was only the uh, uh, land-based element that served with the Royal Naval Division and the various other components that served around uh, Dunkirk and Ostend in 1914 that qualified for the 1914 Star. The Bede itself uh, was was quite
0: quite an interesting spread of units, really, wasn't it? It wasn't just the regular army.
1: No, no. I mean, that's another thing I've found that's sort of been amplified by my research into the the nominal role. I've found all sorts of interesting characters. The public perception of old contemptibles is that, and what you you sort of see in the media is, particularly in August 19th, that the BEF were either very young regular soldiers or sort of long in the tooth reservists who'd all uniformly served in South Africa during the Boer War. Although... To do that, you would have to be on the Section D Reserve because you would have, your 12 years as a regular either with the colours and the reserve would have expired even for some of the younger soldiers who'd been in South Africa say 1901, 1902 by the time 1914 happened. Uh, but there are special reservists and um, also civilians in uniform to, for want of a better phrase, uh, serving in August 1914, particularly in... Um, The support units such as um, the um, Army Service Corps, there were a lot of drivers who were either on the special reserve or even had enlisted sort of within days of war being declared, who within a week of being in in uniform, because they could drive a lorry, found themselves in France, um, serving with uh, ammunition parks and and, uh, ammunition columns and supply columns, various logistic units behind the lines. Um, There's one uh, chap who I can think of, a chap called Walter Fripp, who was um, a member of the Coventry branch of the association, and he actually enlisted at Avonmouth, and on the day enlisted, he was on a ship to France, and then uh, landed and was uh, driving around in his lorry, driving around various places. So there's quite a mixture of people, even that early stage of the war, but later on, obviously, you have the territorial force coming in, um, you have more special reservists being drafted over to replace casualties. Even amongst the Territorial Force soldiers, um, there were are, are individuals who'd enlisted after war declared, so they had only been in uniform a matter of weeks. There was obviously the Royal Naval Division who served Antwerp, and they were a, a mixture of regular Royal Navy stokers, which they had a surplus of, Royal Fleet reservists, Royal uh, Naval Volunteer reservists, and also... Uh, Kitchener volunteers who'd enlisted for particular infantry regiments, but had been drafted to the RNVR um, to make up the battalions that made up the Royal Naval Division. Um, I've even found um, two Americans who were serving with the BEF in 1914 that I'm aware of, uh, individual Australians and New Zealanders and Canadians. Um, so, and of course, part of the BEF in 1914 and, and can be classed equally as old Contemptibles, of course, was the with the thousands of soldiers who served in the Indian Corps uh, who who landed in southern France from September 1914 and then moved north um, to, to take part in fighting around uh, Neuve-Chapelle and Ypres in October and November 1914 as well. So it was a huge sort of diverse body of people who uh, served in France uh, during those dates. And I don't think that's always always sort of considered sometimes
0: no absolutely absolutely Uh, the 1914 star was uh, instituted in 1917 wasn't it Um, so when did sort of the idea of the old contemptibles association come about was it was it after that
1: well the old contemptibles association that, that we know of which has the chums was instigated by a chap called Captain uh, John Patrick Danny, who himself is uh, quite an interesting character because uh, I did some research about him because nobody seemed to sort of know where he came from. And quite by chance, I stumbled upon this uh, reference on an American genealogy site and got in contact with one of his uh, relative of uh, Captain Danny's sister and found out that he was born Rezo Engel in Hungary in 1873. And he'd actually served uh, for 12 years with the Royal Horse Artillery before the war, had uh, come to the end of his service, uh, was working as the secretary for the National Seamans and Firemen Union. And then when war was declared, he re-enlisted and uh, joined the, the Royal Field Artillery, and was sent out to France with 8th Division in November 1914. But he, what he did in on the twenty fifth of June, nineteen twenty five, is he and six other old Contemptibles who held the nineteen fourteen star with clasp decided to have a, a, a meeting to set up an association, uh, which then grew uh, into uh, an, an association that had two hundred and forty branches uh, throughout the world. Um, it wasn't the first type of group that existed. Um, there were previous. There was a previous. Uh, incarnation of an old contemptibles association that had been founded in 1919 and that had there were branches in that i know of in london uh, newcastle glasgow and manchester but that uh, disappeared in 1921 because it was subsumed by the british legion but there were also other groups as well which weren't part of the old Contemptibles association but had sort of similar membership criteria that were based in northern ireland there were the old the Old Contemptibles Association of Wales. Um, There was the Bristol Mons Star Association, Mons Star Club rather. Um, And also there was one for employees of the Great Western Railway as well, which also included holders of the 1914-15 Star. But as far as the Old Contemptibles Association I'm researching, they they started in 1925 um, and they continued. The last element of that association uh, finally closed in August, 1994. Uh, when the uh, London and South area Association uh, finally closed down, so it lasted well over seventy years almost uh, over seventy years um, like I say, there were branches across all across the world there were two in the United States, ten in Canada six, uh, five in australia uh, four in new zealand and there were there were chums in all over the place so and the membership of from my research. The total membership during that period was between something between forty to forty-five thousand uh, chums during between nineteen twenty-five and nineteen ninety-four. So it's it's quite a fairly big organisation.
0: And uh, they issued a little, um, well, the
1: most common one I think is the bronze badge, isn't it? That, uh, That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the badges themselves are quite an interesting sort of artifact because uh, anybody who has a uh, an old contentible association back. Badge will notice on the back of it is stamped an individual uh, number. And during the course of my research, I've I've been able to find sort of documents of almost like a Rosetta Stone that have unlocked the um, the uh, sequence of how these were issued. And there were well over fifty thousand of these badges issued um, between nineteen twenty six, when they first started being uh, given to chums, and nineteen seventy five although it's very difficult to actually find um, definite information to identify an individual chunk from that badge each one was individual and at the time the uh, headquarters of the association had a an overall role so they knew who they'd sent the badge to um, if it was lost it had to be uh, reported to the association the badge at all times was the property of the association, so uh, they were fe- very keen to get it back if uh, a chum had left a particular branch. Uh, and also in the rules of the association, there was a, a section to say that um, the badge could be retained by um, members of a chum's family if he died, but it, on those, in no circumstances should it be ever be worn again other than by the chum it belonged to. So the badges themselves are quite, have quite an interesting story as well. But uh, you see a lot of those about on eBay and various other things, but uh, as there were over 50,000 issued, that's that's not surprising really.
0: No, no, it'd be good to find that role with them all listed in.
1: I know um, out of the 50,000 that were issued, I, I've only got information on about 280 individuals and match their badge number with their individual records. So I've got quite a way to go on that.
0: And and the other thing you often see, I mean, I've seen them in in cemeteries over the years, is that that sort of like a grave marker with the same badge of the old
1: contemptibles. That's right, yeah, the memorial plaques. I mean, again, they're quite an interesting, uh, there's an interesting story behind those, uh, which I've been researching. The idea of having a marker um, is basically because a lot of the chums were in straitened circumstances and uh, couldn't afford a headstone. So the association's, had an idea that as well as marking uh, the grave of one of their departed chums that it would also serve as a headstone for them and there were various sort of uh, plans put in place but by 1935 the Coventry branch had uh, designed uh, a a memorial plaque which the grave marks are known as which was just a plain version of the badge on a, a stake and they had a number produced which were then uh, made available and Coventry branch uh, went around the cemeteries around the area and placed them on the graves of chums and then they sent others off to other branches around the country and then later on the design of the plaque changed and uh, again those those were used up until 1975 that's the last reference I've got of uh, one being placed on a grave. Again I've found references to individual ones there's about 130 that I've got details of so far. But unfortunately, some of these uh, uh, plaques have been removed from graves and either been stolen or uh, sold for scrap and sold for scrap. But occasionally, some of them end up on uh, auction sites. I mean, the last, earlier this year, there were two that appeared on eBay, for example, and uh, they usually said that, uh, described as uh, they were, Sort of given to the families, and that's not true because they are actually placed on the graves, and the the chums uh, had obviously paid for them to be placed on the graves, and uh, there was usually a ceremony involved when they're uh, officially placed on the graves and things like that. So uh, it's I don't know, it's 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 something that I'm I'm sort of quite passionate of trying to get the ones that survive in situ being recorded in some way, and I know there's uh, people who argue that that would encourage um, theft for either the the value of the metal or as for collectors but at the same time if you don't know where they are you don't know they're stolen and you don't know they exist until they actually end up on auction sites and things like that it's it's just it's another sort of uh, physical reminder of the chums, which i think needs to be uh, more well known about and and what the, the actual memorial plaques actually stand for as well
0: yeah, and it'd be a good way of getting, I think, local communities to appreciate the history they've got on their doorstep like that.
1: Absolutely, Paul, because there's, there's so many reminders of the chums uh, about. I mean, if you go into uh, churches uh, in any sort of large city or town, you might notice that there's a brass standard laid up there, um, or even a memorial inside a church to mark that uh, chums um, worshipped at the church or, or, you know, wanted to set the memorial up there. In Birmingham, for example, we actually have a living memorial to the Chums, to the Birmingham branch, uh, and that's the Old Contemptibles pub, uh, which is where the Birmingham branch had their headquarters for most of the time during the existence. They were formed in 1928, and in 1953, Mitchell's and Butler's Brewery decided to rename the pub, which was called the Albion Hotel, the Old Contemptibles in their honour. And the names have been retained. And this, if you go into the pub, as I know you have many times, and and I have many times, I live in Birmingham. There are still some reminders of the Birmingham branch on the walls that you can see, So photographs and little clippings and things like that. And it's 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 nice that there's something there tangible that you can uh, sort of remember them in in a situation that they thoroughly enjoyed themselves, having a pint of beer and a natter.
0: Yeah, it's a very good place, isn't it, for a great war enthusiast to meet up. Yeah. So in terms of um, uh, what you've been researching, you, you've started to, to publish some of this information, haven't you?
1: I have, yeah. It started off with a Facebook page, which I originally set up in 2013, just putting little snippets that I've been sort of uh, recording and, and stowing away sort of many years previously. And then I sort of shifted the emphasis from trying to retell the events of 1914 to look at uh, the old contemptibles association uh, as well um, and that's been quite uh, interesting for me because i've been very fortunate that i've had a lot of relatives of chums share information with me that i wouldn't have had, wouldn't have known about otherwise they've shared photographs um, i've been very fortunate that i was contacted by the grandson of one particular chum who's uh, quite well known for anybody who's seen the bbc great war um, documentary from 1964, a chap called John Willis Palmer, uh, Peddler Palmer, who was uh, in the Walthamstow branch. His grandson, uh, Gary, very kindly uh, forwarded me the original branch records of the Walthamstow branch to, to, and I've been allowed to borrow them for a while so to help me with my research. And it's a pleasure to be able to share this information and with other people and also help relatives of Chum's. Uh, find out a little bit more if, information about their grandfathers, great grandfathers, and keep the memory of the chums green. And it's it's you know using it's a good way to use social media.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, because it you know there must be like the the records of that the Walthamstow branch. There must be lots of this material sitting in people's attics and drawers and stuff that really could do with coming out and and, and
1: to increase our understanding of the old contemptibles. Absolutely, I mean there are a few. Um, branch records held in archives all over the country. And and last year, when I went on a family holiday to Jersey, I uh, sneakily booked a couple of hours at Jersey Archive to look at the Jersey branch records, and they're fantastic to look at because uh, they've got scrapbooks and they've got the membership books and everything else. Because there's no sort of central focal point for the association, the, the information sort of, uh, like I like, say, scattered about in various archives in the Imperial War Museum various local archive offices and uh, record offices and a lot still held by family members as well. And who don't are not necessarily aware of how important these uh, little pieces of paper and things are to researchers. You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic primary source information. And it's so, it's so nice to be privileged that uh, when somebody gets in contact with me on my Facebook page and say, oh, I've got my granddad's badge and, uh, you know is a couple of photographs of him and the various other bits of paper and it's a, it's a great privilege to to see these things and, and then be able to help them to tell the story of that particular chum and it's uh you know it's very gratifying for me to be in a position to be able to do that
0: yeah and we'll put uh, some links on the old front line website to your facebook group so that people can find you because could be that some people listening to this have got some information that could be of interest to you
1: absolutely i mean um, i'm always searching for anything to do with the old contentables association or chums any any sort of little scrap of information is is always of interest to me and uh you know it, it could sort of be the key to unlocking some other element of the story that i'm not aware about yet because although i've done quite a lot of research i'm by no means finished i mean the uh, I'm working on a nominal role of chums at the moment, and like say, there's, I estimate there's between forty and 40, forty-five thousand chums who are members of the association uh, between 1925 and 1994. I've only got and confirmed the details of getting on for eight thousand so far, so that's just a drop in the ocean. And there's so much information that I know is out there that I haven't got to got to uh, look at yet, or Obviously, I can't do it at the moment because of the situation we're in, but I know that uh, in, the fu- in the future, when I can do, I'll be going down to London to go to the uh, British Library to look at uh, the copies of the Old Contemptible that they have there, which I haven't had access to, and and trying to get to other archives to see what information they have as well, just to help build up a, a better picture of, uh, of the, the chums and their lives and the stories as well. So very much an evolving project then? Yes, it is very much so. It's growing all the time. I'm always, uh, I mean, to the despair of my wife, I'm, uh, I'm probably doing something chums related every day. There's, there's always something that comes up, Paul, as you know.
0: Well, it's, it's one of the joys of this, you know. We've said it many times, it never ends and there's always a fresh page and a new story and another name. And I think that's great, really
1: yeah it is like i say it's a privilege to be able to do this and uh it's a privilege that so many people have helped me sort of uh with information and shared information with me i'm I'm just sort of trying to tell the story and um i hope that what i post on my facebook page or what dear little snippets i put on twitter or the little articles i put on my blog are of use to people and you know help with their research as well because that's that's the whole point of it. It's, there's no point to doing research and hiding it away. You, you've got to share it with people and you've got, you know, because it could help them.
0: Now, in terms of individual old contemptibles, you know, there's, there's well, several hundred thousand of them. But there's one that is of interest to a lot of people who, who travel to the battlefield to the First World War or, or have a, even a passing interest to it. And that is what is believed to be the first British Western Front casualty in action of the Great War, John Parr. But like a lot of things with the Great War, what we think we know isn't always what actually happened. Yes.
1: Yeah. John Parr's stories are very interesting. I mean, obviously, the uh, version of the story that we know now, always uh, repeated constantly now, is that uh, he was killed on the evening of the 21st of August 1914 while on the bicycle with a friend. Uh, apparently, he was a fellow soldier on a bicycle and he was uh, on a reconnaissance uh, patrol but uh, there's a lot of inconsistencies with that story and I'm not the first one to do this by any means uh, questioning sort of like the veracity of the story but uh, what, for my own personal sort of curiosity I decided instead of trying to develop yet another theory about how he was killed on the 21st of August was to try and do some research to find out the origins of the story of why people believe he was killed on the 21st of August and how the story evolved and and all the background information to it. I've written about it in my blog and it's, it's quite a complicated, sort of convoluted story. But pretty much um, before 1976, when Rose Coombs published her, her first edition of Before Endeavours Fade, John Parr's name wasn't really on the radar of, of uh, anybody um, in particular who had an interest in the Great War or his story wasn't known genu- generally anyway and in the first edition of that book obviously Rose had been to the battlefields many times and she'd noticed that uh, Private Parr um, was recorded in Soldier's Died of the Great War and in other uh, official documents as having been killed on the 21st of August 1914. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, when she would visited the, um, the cemetery during the 1970s, the uh, headstone at St Semphorian Cemetery had 23rd of August on it. On it, So she did a bit of investigation. And uh, by the time the fourth edition of her book came out in 1983, the story developed that he'd gone riding off on his bicycle on the evening of the 21st of August, and he'd been killed. And Uh, Based on um, that information, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission had uh, altered his headstone date to the 21st of August. But in fact, um, the 21st of August date had been on his headstone when it was first erected uh, in the early 1920s, uh, when they laid out um, the cemetery, when the Imperial War Graves Commission took over the cemetery. And the information, that date, had actually come from what was recorded on his records at the... uh, Infantry Records Office at Hounslow. Although, again, if you refer to Private Par's original service record or what remains of it, there's, there are discrepancies of the dates on there. And so what I've been able to determine is that the date that's on, that was on his headstone originally, which was the 21st of August, didn't come from German sources, but most likely came from British sources from the Infantry Record Office. And again, this, I'll go into more detail on my blog post uh, regarding private power. But for many years, the um, 21st of August date was on his headstone up until 1963 when a, a chap called uh, William Beard got in contact with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Unfortunately, his correspondence isn't preserved, but based on what he told them, they altered the date on his headstone to the 23rd of August. Now, William Beatt served uh, with the 4th Battalion, the Middlesex Regiment, in 1914. And he was a battalion scout. And obviously, what he'd told the Commonwealth Graves Commission had given them uh, enough cause to uh, notice that the date was probably uh, incorrect and to alter it back to the 23rd of August. Where Rose Coombs comes in, and again, where William Beat reappears, uh, is much later in the story. Because uh, in 1979 and 1980, she accompanied old comrades of the Middlesex Regiment back to Mons. And she'd heard... Obviously, she'd uh, done her research about private power and noticed the difference between the date recorded in Soldiers Died of the Great War and also what was on his headstone at the time. And she also came across the story of um, two cyclists being sent off on the morning of the 22nd of August to uh, get in contact with outposts that had been set out in front of the battalion the night before. So from that uh, story of the cyclists being sent out on the 21st, 22nd of August... To get in contact with outposts it's suddenly sort of the story changed to um private power riding out on his bike on the evening of the 21st of august and being killed apparently william beard had also um told this story um been talking to um dickie smith who i know you knew paul yeah uh, about, about um what had happened uh, during the war because he went on a pilgrimage in 1972 to mons uh, one that was filmed by the BBC, as it happens. And um, based on what Beat had told Dickie Smith, um, he wrote in support of, of the uh, sort of to have the date changed to the 21st of August. So basically from that point uh, in the early 80s, the story of Private Parr being killed originally started off him being on his own on the bicycle. Later on, people found out a bit more about William Beard um, and his testimony and then private part is now sort of like himself and private be- private beard on the bikes together private beer being waved away to be told to inform them that uh by private part while he's engaging the enemy while he was before he was shot and it's it's there's, there's so many inconsistencies in the story and like i say i'll go into it in great detail in my blog post it's it's quite uh it's quite difficult to explain sort of straight in a straightforward, easy way, but basically, I don't personally believe that uh, Private Parr was the first soldier killed, and there's been so, the uh, story about how he was killed is uh, a sort of a manipulation of uh, known facts, and then has been embellished subsequently.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you yeah. know, th- there were men on bikes, there were reconnaissance patrols like that. You know, that's that's. Part of what the army did at that time. But when you look at where they were and how far away the enemy was, you know, if, if that was the case, who killed him? I mean, I know John Cooksey, the late John Cooksey did some research on that and came up with the idea of it being friendly fire. But that sort of takes you down yet yeah, another avenue, doesn't it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. Uh, people have thought that there have been theories added to sort of uh, support the date of death. But, Pete, I think you need to go further back and you need to look at the sort of like the source evidence and things like that. And like obviously there's friendly fire. And, and uh, I mean, at the time, the official commemorations uh, in August 2014, um, I've got the booklet that was uh, for the ceremony that was held at Simpson Four and there's a passage about Private power, and it mentions that he was uh, a member of um, a, sp- a specific group of scouts that had been organised by 8th Infantry Brigade. There's absolutely no evidence for that on his service record or, or anything else recorded to support that statement. If you look at Private Par's record, there's no information recorded on there to say that he qualified as a scout, even. William it Beard. It would be on there, wouldn't part. it,
0: because, because he, was, it he, was, was, yeah. he was a proficiency award for which they'd have had
1: more pay. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's, it's, little, it's fundamental details like this that need to be looked at. And uh, like I say, I've written about it in my blog, my blog and it's, it's quite a long article, because I've sort of tried to trace the sort of... Uh, Evolution of the story and everything else. But um, there's another soldier as well who's commemorated by the uh, Commonwealth War Grace Commission, a private Bradshaw, who's in the 4th Battalion Royal Fusiliers. He's also recorded by the Commission as having been killed on the 21st of August. 1914 but his grave was moved uh, in the 60s uh, from uh, Masier uh, where he was um, originally buried over to Cement House Cemetery in Ypres and because he's not on the Mons battlefield even though his uh, date of death is exactly the same as Private Parr's, he's not on anybody's radar yet if you um, apply the same reasoning as been has been applied with the case of Private Parr then surely private Bradshaw would also be one of the first well a first soldier who was killed by enemy action the information is quite plainly incorrect because it it's it said um, it's recorded in several sources that he died as the prisoner of war in enemy hands of wounds and he was he was uh, most likely uh, mortally wounded uh, around the canal around nime on the 23rd of august these things happen you know a slip of the pen lack of information that there's various reasons could be attributed to these uh, mistakes. I mean, it's very, it's easy for us in the, the uh, with all our um, internet and uh, easy access to records and things like that, that we can spot mistakes and things like that. But it, for a clerk in a record office, who's dealing with thousands of files with information coming in at all times, trying to uh, um, notify next of kin of soldiers who are missing or are killed or trying to find out what had happened to them in the first place. You know, it's it. we need to understand what it was like for them during the Great War, trying to administer the records. So it's quite easy that they, you know, it's quite understandable that these mistakes happen. I mean, they're happening today, aren't they, with uh, Excel spreadsheets, but that's another thing entirely. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and I suppose the mystery as well is, if he did die so far away, you know, on that border with France, how is it, how did he end up in... Sense in Fourien Cemetery, who buried him there. There's no record to indicate that it's a concentration burial from, from the locations that are supposedly connected to him. It's a curious one.
1: It is a very curious one. I mean, what I did to try and establish sort of, I had an idea that the data come from the records office at Hounslow, but what, to be able to confirm it, what I did was I looked at the burial returns from the Imperial War Graves Commission, which are available on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website now, and compared the dates of death recorded on those with the information that was recorded on the uh, Register of Soldiers' Effects and any surviving service records for the soldiers who were buried in the uh, same row as Private Park. And what I found was that uh, the dates of death were entered by the Imperial War Graves Commission staff because there wasn't any information on any markers that had been provided by the Germans at the time. They were all entered subsequently when they were doing the, the grave registration in 1921, I think it was. And you'll also notice on some, some of the soldiers who were buried in um, the same row as Private Parr, there's a soldier from the Middlesex Regiment. I think his date of death is recorded as the 4th of November, 1914, and his records survive. And that's actually the date that information had been received via the American embassy from the Germans uh, that he died not necessarily the date on when he, when he died, but when the information was received. And similarly, there's a soldier from the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment who uh, originally was recorded to have died on the 19th of October, 1914. And what I found was that uh, there was a soldier with the same name from the same battalion who was taken uh, prisoner at La Philly on that date. Um, the record office at Cork had confused the two soldiers, so had sent the information to the Imperial War Graves Commission uh, that he died on the 19th of October. Then it was subsequently found that that was incorrect, and the error was corrected, and uh, is now recorded as having died on the 23rd of August. So, like I say, it's um, you have to have a look at the source information to be able to sort of get try and get a better understanding. But like I say, how the story about Private powers is developed now bears absolutely no relation to what Little Ever. What little factual paper evidence there is to support the claims that are made about him now.
0: No, and I think it's it's the, it's the temptation of that story, isn't it? Really, knowing that there he is, buried opposite Trooper Ellison, killed on the last day of the war, and they're separated sure. by a few feet of ground, and it's the first and the last.
1: Yeah, I think I think the um, sort of like the emotional. Um need to have a symbolic first and last fatality and like you say mirroring each other within yards. It's just it's almost a similar situation to the memorials at Casto, where you got like obviously the, the uh, Fourth Dragoon Guards Memorial. And then across the road you've got the one to the 116th Battalion of the CEF, again separated by um a, a matter of yards. It's sort of like um the emotional need to have sort of symb- symbols on the battlefield. Is overriding sort of um, perhaps the need to to look at cold hard facts and to be honest with you, to be to try and be fair to the to these soldiers instead of being sort of making them as symbols. Try and try and tell their stories as honestly as he possibly can.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I, and I think it just shows that you know, as we often say, really, is that the the last page of the Great War's history. You know, we'll, we'll never see it written, certainly not in our lifetime and probably not in a few lifetimes because there's so much more for us to know and
1: understand. Absolutely. I mean, you you never stop learning and, there's this, and you never stop um, finding something that makes you question what you thought that you knew before. I mean, like doing the research I've been doing about the old contemptibles, my understanding of who um, like the soldiers who served in the BF in 1914 has... Has increased and and has changed considerably from what I thought on you, basically by just going back to their, um, su- you know, surviving details of the service, finding out where they came from, uh, what they worked as before the war, before they joined up, and also the stories about what happened to them after the war as well, when they, you know, after they left the army, and uh, some of the interesting stories that you find out about people's lives afterwards. It's it's quite easy but finding out about soldiers who survived the Great War is very difficult in comparison with trying to find information about those who sadly uh, didn't survive. I mean, we're very fortunate in having all the uh, uh, resources of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to refer to if we're looking for uh, those who, um, who died. But for those who survived, it's um, a far more difficult um, process. And obviously... I'll try not to do it myself as much as I can but obviously with regard to the those who died and those who survive it's so easy to project our modern way of thinking onto the way that they thought and it's it's like I say it's not fair to them to do that you you have to try and and if you can use their own words and and try and uh, let them speak for themselves rather than you put their put put their experiences through your voice and your sort of understanding Absolutely, and I, I think it's why it's research in primary sources is such an important thing. Yes, it is, yes.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you for for, your, for telling us about your fantastic bit of research there in, in both the Old Contemptibles Association and, and also Parr himself. Um, we'll put a link to your Facebook page and also your, your article about the research that you've done into John Parr.
1: Yeah, the, um, the, the article um, is probably far more articulate than me doing a blog. Doing a uh, podcast?
0: <laughs> no, none at all. No, no, no. It's just fascinating to hear it, and I'm sure a lot of people would like to read all the detail that, that's in there. So, thanks for your for your time, Andrew. It's been
1: fascinating chatting to you, and hopefully, we'll get you back again sometime to to chat a bit more. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Cheers, Andrew.
0: You've been listening to an episode of The Old Frontline with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.